Hello, my friends. It's time for Greenwich, a town for all seasons. Welcome to the 12th of August, 2022 episode of the Greenwich of Town for All Seasons show podcast. It is hosted by me. I'm Jeffrey Bingham Mead, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, a place long known as the gateway to New England. As always, I'm so glad that you could join us for today's show. Thank you very much for tuning in. Now, founded on July 18, 1640, the town of Greenwich, Connecticut is one of America's most interesting and extraordinary communities. It's a place that we like to call home. In this weekly podcast, we dedicate ourselves to exploring one of America's most notable and dynamic communities, a place that is very, very rich in history that we are very eager and interested in sharing with others. Now, whether your roots go back nearly 400 years, as mine do, or 400 seconds or somewhere in between, or you're just literally, literally, if I could say it, <laughs> whether you're brand new to all of this, if you're here to stay or just passing through, well, we welcome you with open arms and we remind you that you are a part of our history. So I extend my congratulations to you. The Greenwich and Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Peter F. Alexander, landscape architect of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, which is a project of Site Design Associates, the Ambassador Museum United States of America, Mr. Kevin M. J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Coming up on today's show... It's with pleasure that on the Talk of the Town segment that I will be welcoming Matt Bernard. He is the author of Victorian Summer, the Historic Houses of Bellhaven Park, Greenwich, Connecticut. The Bellhaven Peninsula in Greenwich is home to one of the first and most spectacular residence parks in the United States. Between 1884 and 1894, Bellhaven was transformed from scenic pasture land set above the glistening ribbon of Long Island Sound into a bastion of Victorian luxury. The New York Times called it, quote, the flower garden of Greenwich and indeed of the whole Connecticut shore, unquote. Estate biographies, each telling the story of a house, an architect, and a predominant owner, come alive thanks to meticulously revealed details by Matt Bernard. Now, the Greenwich News and Graphic revealed a century ago, in 1922, that the Bruce Museum's collections featured, are you ready for this, 13,000 specimens. Yeah, that's pretty good. Now, as we step back in history to Greenwich's Great Estates era from 1880 to 1930, you'll hear about a mid-country estate whose owner bought the rights to a candy called Lifesavers, turning it into a multi-million dollar business. He was the first chairman of the Civil Aeronautics Authority, and he founded the American Broadcasting Company and did a lot more. His name, Edward John Noble. His estate, Lockwold. 
built in 1923 to 1924 and designed by architect Louis Colt Albro, whose works included the Columbia University Library and Carnegie Libraries in New York. President and Mrs. Glover Cleveland came to Greenwich to visit Commodore E.C. Benedict at his great estate on the shore called Oneida. I'll have some details about that. In Crimes and Misdemeanors, our salute to the Greenwich Police Department on its 125th anniversary. We have a rather unusual story to tell you. Big Chief Two Moons of the Blackfeet Tribe of North Dakota was in Greenwich. His, the chief's car, a Lafayette special, was damaged by a Greenwich Avenue resident. The matter went to court. What happened? Well, I'll share that with you. I promise. <laughs> I'll have more about Discover Greenwich creating a sense of place celebrating the 90th year anniversary of the Greenwich Historical Society with news of exhibits, activities, events for the public, and more. My friends, you have come to the right place to immerse yourself in the history of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut. We'll have all this and more as history continues to unfold. Don't go away. Stay where you are. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these important messages. Support is made possible by... Site Design Associates is an award-winning landscape architecture studio located in historic Greenwich, Connecticut and founded in 1979 by its principal, Peter F. Alexander, landscape architect. Committed to a unique multidisciplinary approach to professional landscape design and development, Site Design Associates' ambition is to foster a sense of excellence that is second to none from analysis to construction and maintenance with 35 years of experience, coupled with a sense of place, purpose, and history. Now, Peter F. Alexander is a member of the American Society of Landscape Architects. He's a graduate of the Rhode Island School of Design and a member of the American Planning Association. My friends, Peter F. Alexander and Site Design Associates is the title sponsor of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast, and we are very grateful for the support that we receive. You can learn more at sitedesignassociates.com. You can call Peter F. Alexander at 203-869-8632. Again, that's 203-869-8632. Or you can email him at peterA at sitedesignassociates.com. A special project of Site Design Associates and its principal landscape architect, Peter F. Alexander, the Greenwich, Connecticut-based Long Island Sound Institute consists of a community of professionals, researchers, academics, and concerned individuals progressively congruently working towards safeguarding Long Island Sound through research, historical perspective, and restoring ecological balance through management, policy, and education. The Long Island Sound Institute's aspiration is to promote modern planning and the implementation of the most up-to-date technologies available to conserve Long Island Sound for future generations. Long Island Sound Institute's studio is at 2 Greenwich Office Park West. To contact the Institute, email LISIHI2023 at gmail.com. That's L I 
SIHI2023 at gmail.com or call area code 203 869 8632. Again, that's 203 869 8632. There are many ways to serve our country. A select number of individuals are nominated to serve as U.S. ambassadors in countries around the world. Their diplomatic assignments are vital to the U.S. maintaining peaceful and working relationships with global governments. The Ambassador Museum, United States of America, is based in Greenwich, Connecticut. AMUSA is in the process of organizing and implementing a virtual ambassador museum. This facility will be a tribute not just to the ambassadors, but also their families, experiences, and the millions of lives that have been affected by them. Its goal is to correct a stereotypical idea that large donors are the people who are selected as ambassadors of the United States and the notion that some in the State Department make a career out of being an ambassador. To learn more about the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, go online to amusa.info. That's that's amusa.info. Call 203-347-4604. Or you can also write to P.O. Box 5002, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06831. Well, thank you, Kevin M.J. O'Connor, Vice President of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, knowledgeable in the complexities of the financial markets with a passion for servicing clients and their financial needs. My friends, learn more at jeffreymatthews.com or call Kevin M.J. O'Connor at his Greenwich office, telephone 203-485-7595. Again, that's Kevin M.J. O'Connor his Greenwich office at 203-485-7595. My friends, welcome to Talk of the Town. My name is Jeffrey Bingham Mead, and I am your host. At the height of the Gilded Age, America's wealthiest families began to cluster in Newport, Southampton, Bar Harbor, and Tuxedo Park. In these idyllic locales, they built luxurious summer cottages, quote-unquote, away from the grit and grime of New York, Boston, and Philadelphia. The Bellhaven Peninsula in Greenwich, Connecticut, is home to one of America's first residential parks. My guest today on Talk of the Town is Matt Bernard, the author of Victorian Summer, the Historic Houses of Bellhaven Park, Greenwich, Connecticut. This meticulously researched and richly illustrated book focuses on the great flowering of Bellhaven from 1884 to 1929. You can purchase copies at your favorite online book source or at the Greenwich Historical Society's gift shop in Coscob. Matt, welcome to the show. Tell us about yourself. Well, thank you for inviting me, Jeffrey. Um, I grew up here in town. My family moved to Belhaven in the early 70s. I think it was the summer of seventh grade. Mm-hmm. Um, my parents are still there in the same house that they purchased, mm-hmm. um, which we just renovated and tried to restore for them. Mm-hmm. And um, I live here in town also. I, as an adult with my own family, I bought um, a carriage house behind their house in Belhaven where I raised my kids when they were little. Mm-hmm. And we now have that as a rental house. 
and um, I'm in the commercial and residential real estate business. We um, sell and lease properties here in town, a lot of retail on Greenwich Avenue, and um, do a lot of residential work for our commercial clients. Oh, very good. Now, describe for us the spark that ignited your interest in Bellhaven's history and the compilation of this incredible book. I had always been interested in residential architecture, even as a precocious younger kid. And um, we had lived in a um, architectural uh, mid-century house in Los Angeles in a neighborhood that was one of the early um, incubators for modern architecture in in the L.A. area. Uh, There were Neutra houses, there were Flanker Frank Lloyd Wright houses, uh, Schindler homes. And when we moved to Greenwich, my mom um, was nervous about being in the backcountry where she couldn't see any neighbors and <laughs> sort of focused in on Belhaven area and found a house that had been renovated in the 60s. Actually, they had uh, previous owners had put a modern addition on the back. Um, as we got settled in the home, um, I started exploring and found a number of interesting architectural elements that mm-hmm. I couldn't really place or figure out. Okay. One was in the basement. There was sort of this huge basement area. Okay. Um, there was a turret in the foundation, but there was no <laughs> turret upstairs. Oh. There was a porch, but no turret. Okay. Then when you went up to the third floor, right. um, there was a staircase. You could see the bottom of the newel post from the original staircase in the front of the house, the main staircase, going up. But then there was a closet door, uh, which when we played hide-and-seek, we always locked people in. And when you went up the <laughs> stairs to the top, the roof went over it. And when you turned on the flashlight to see, there was about eight inches between the roof beams structure and the old floor at the top of the stairs and you Uh could see these old floorboards and these old walls and so what we figured was that there had been another story on the house Mm -hmm. because it was the only uh federal style house in Bellhaven with a flat roof yeah and so based on that i started doing research okay um while i was in junior high school and greenwich high school oh that early that early wow spent some time at the historical society and over the years with fits of starts and stops i uh, probably over a 30 or 40 year period started collecting ephemera Mm -hmm. related to the house um not knowing that the house was part of a family compound Mm -hmm. um as and was a summer house right and so in the late 70s, a family knocked on the door who had lived there from the 20s to the 30s. Oh, wow. And they were kind enough to send me a picture of the house, okay. which opened up a whole slew of questions. And they also drew the floor plans of the third floor oh, and wow. the original first floor. Right. So after the war in the 50s, Bellhaven sort of lost its shine, and these houses were considered white elephants. People really wanted sort of builders' colonials, we would call an IBM colonial, sort of Baldwin Farms-type 60s colonials that were new and modern and 
and Bellhaven, really the Victorians and the houses were just out of fashion. Mm. So this house had been modernized after the war. Somebody had taken off all the sleeping porches, the turrets, mm. and the top floor, yeah. and also taken all the details out of the main rooms and oh, wow. simplified the house. Yeah. So based on that, I sort of discovered that the house was unlike what we thought. We thought it would be Queen Anne, mm-hmm. but it wasn't. It was sort of a shingle-style Newport house. Okay. And so with that, I was able to start tracking um, through town records and maps mm-hmm. um, the actual physical story of the property. Right. Okay. And then... Everything cascaded, and now we have this wonderful book today. (laughs) Very nice. What resources did you use or rely upon for this? Well, in addition to um, maps, fire atlases that Mm -hmm. the town hall has in their basement, and uh, researching deeds, Mm -hmm. um, we were able to track down a number of photographs from local residents, and... um, then the Historical Society has an amazing archive, and they humored me over many years through many archivists who were kind enough to put up with me, and I became an archive <laughs> rat and volunteered there and also documented a lot of pictures that they had right. that they didn't realize were Bellhaven houses. Ah. So by ah. tracing fire atlases, yes. you can sort of figure out what the foundation plans of houses were okay. and then try to match them to pictures and based on where chimneys were stacked and uh, property lines. Okay. Oh, now it makes sense. All right. Very, very good. Now, now Bellhaven was started as, quote-unquote, a residential park. Um, And I was wondering if you would describe what is the concept of a residential park and tell us a little bit about the uh, the men who initially developed these Bellhaven, quote-unquote, cottages. Well, starting in the 1850s, there was a country life movement, um, which was um, based on moving people out of the city who could afford to and creating sort of rural country environments where people could summer and get out of the grit and grime of urban industrialized cities such as New York and Boston and Philadelphia. Um, In the 1880s, a group who had been summering at what was the Kent House, which is one of the bigger inns in town, it was on the site of where the way station was uh, before that mountain was carved away (laughs) for 95 in the 50s, um, the town was filled with summer resorts, and a number of people as we would today go to Nantucket or Martha's Vineyard and decide you love it and want to buy a house there who went to the Kent house, decided they would buy from the Mead family Mm -hmm. about 200 acres of what was horse neck. Mm -hmm. And they christened it Bellhaven park. Mm -hmm. Um, It was the first planned subdivision Mm -hmm. in Greenwich. So from a localized basis, it was, the first subdivision, but it was also the first planned community. They hired Frederick Law Olmsted's office to lay out the proposed park mm-hmm. in the 1880s. Right. Um, and it was always intended to be sort of a, not only a residential community that could evolve into a full-time community, mm-hmm. but also a f- 
a subdivision that had uh, amenities, right. whether it was a beach mm-hmm. or a casino, which was a clubhouse, yes. what they called a clubhouse at yeah. the time, um, and just tennis courts and parklands yeah. and sort of a variety of country life movement amenities that mm. you'd seen up in Newport with the uh, tennis casino yes. and all those things were very popular in the 1880. All right. Now, uh, my friends, we're going to take a short break. You are listening to Talk of the Town on the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show. My name is Jeffrey Bingham Mead, and I am your host. With me today is Matt Bernard, and he is the author of a truly extraordinary book called Victorian Summer, the Historic Houses of Bellhaven Park, Greenwich, Connecticut. This meticulously researched and illustrated book focuses on the great flowering of Bellhaven, and you can purchase copies at the Greenwich Historical Society's gift shop uh, or at your favorite online resource. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these important messages. Presented by the First Bank of Greenwich and supported by Waterstone on High Ridge, Music on the Great Lawn has been entertaining audiences weekly in the heart of Greenwich Historical Society's campus at 47 Rick Strickland Road. Summer is sizzling. Pack your picnic and enjoy an evening of live music in Bush Holly's exquisite historic gardens. Mark your calendars for Thursday, August 11th, when the Bob Button Band is set to perform. On Thursday, August 25th, get ready for Gunsmoke. Space is limited. Advanced registration is recommended. Members, $10. Non-members, $20. Become a Greenwich Historical Society member and receive special rates. My friends, don't put this off any further. The Great Lawn at Bush Holly House opens 5.30 p.m., concert 6.30 p.m. to 8 p.m. Parking is free. Learn more at GreenwichHistory.org or call 203-869-6899. It's easy to see why the Greenwich Historical Society's Tavern Garden Markets have been wowing shoppers this summer. In a class by itself, the Tavern Garden Markets feature a specially curated and alternating selection of locally grown and sourced products. Support local growers, producers, and artisans when you fill your basket and your home with the bounties of native and unique handcrafted goods. Enjoy farm-to-table organic produce, fresh eggs, plants, and flowers. Savor the flavors of nutritious prepared foods, fresh-baked breads, fruit pies, and donuts. Find the perfect gift among an array of vintage silver, jewelry, stationery, ceramics, and accessories. Mark your calendars for Wednesday, August 10th and August 24th. 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. But you know what? Here's a secret. Shh! Early birds are welcomed at 9.30. Tavern Garden Markets are held in the lobby and Tavern Gardens at the Greenwich Historical Society's Bush Holly House Campus at 47 Strickland Road. Free parking. Tavern Garden Markets are sponsored by Yashmin Lloyds and Compass. All right. Well, welcome back from uh, from our break. My name is Jeffrey Bingham Mead, and you're listening to Talk of the Town on Greenwich Town for All Seasons. My guest today is Matt Bernard, the author of Victorian Summer, the Historic Houses of Belhaven Park, Greenwich, Connecticut. It's a truly extraordinary book. Now, now, Matt, who were the notable architects, both of the buildings and the grounds of this new residential park called Belhaven? Interestingly enough, the um, 
the original partners and a lot of the original um, lot buyers were Gilded Age millionaires, um, entrepreneurial guys from mostly the steel industry, and they had access to some of the stellar Gilded Age architects in America. And what we find in Belhaven, uh, which was so interesting, is the named architects of some of the most fabulous houses um, that were built in Newport and Tuxedo Park and in the city, um, such as we found an undocumented McKinmead and White House, um, which was very interesting. Uh, Lamb and Rich. Oh, yes. uh, uh, Thomas Hastings of Carrera and Hastings, and he was married to Mr. Benedict's daughter. Ah, yes. And so there was a connection there. Mm -hmm. Um, The architect of choice in Belhaven, and most of these architects had at one time or another worked for larger firms. So there were a lot of architects who went out on their own who had worked for McKim, Mead, and White, Mm -hmm. which then, fast forward a couple hundred years, everybody thinks they live in a McKim, Mead, and White house, (laughs) which is not the case, unfortunately. Uh, (laughs) Um, But they, uh, the, the architect... The biggest firm was Boring, Tilton, and Mellon, and that firm did eight houses, including the casino, Mm -hmm. and they're best known for doing the main hall at Ellis Island. Do you have any personal favorite homes of yours and noteworthy residents? The the, the book is rich with stories, so um, share that with us. Uh, One of the most interesting houses was a three-acre compound that was on uh, at the intersection of... Uh, Meadowood Drive and where Otter Rock Drive meet down by the club. And this was the most fabulous Gilded Age shingle-style house uh, built by a very famous architect of townhouses in New York. And um, the house was sited on three acres with views of the water. Uh, Most of the Victorians didn't want actually to be on the water. They liked the vistas. And this house um, had uh, not only turrets, um, but uh, wrapped around verandas. Mm -hmm. And by the 1920s um, was considered, it was owned by a family by the name of Helm. Mm -hmm. And there's actually a Helm's Helmsville in New Jersey. They were tobacco heirs. And um, this house as many of the Belhaven houses found by the end of World War II, um, was too large to maintain. Uh Um, Mr. Helms died. The house sat vacant for 20 years Mm -hmm. until it was torn down after the war. And the site currently is vacant waiting for redevelopment. Ah, interesting, interesting. Now, now as we close, based on this wonderful history of of Belhaven that you have compiled uh, for us, what do you think is in store for Belhaven's future. Uh, do you want to make any predictions or any reflections, anything at all? Well, we hope that the book on a localized basis will inspire people to look at the rich history of Belhaven from an architectural standpoint and whenever possible restore one of the few when the houses trade to restore the original houses so that they can be adapted for modern-day life. But then if they can't be restored or if they're beyond repair, that people will actually ask their architects to look at the neighborhood in context, which is one of the goals of the book, um, to see what did a Victorian summer community look at the turn look like at the turn of the century Mm -hmm. from a template standpoint. And actually, when building a new house, 
um, have their architectural styles reflect that. Matt Bernard, you are the author of this wonderful book called Victorian Summer, the Historic Houses of Belhaven Park, Greenwich, Connecticut. The, folks, this is a, an incredibly meticulously, meticulously researched and illustrated book, and it's truly extraordinary. What a privilege it, is, it has been to have you with us today uh, on, uh, on Talk of the Town, on Greenwich of Town for All Seasons. This is a wonderful contribution to the preservation of our town, and I do want to thank you very much, not only for being here on the show, but for doing this extraordinary book. Thank you so much on behalf of all of us. Thank you for allowing me to come in and share the story. Appreciate it. You are listening to the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast hosted by Jeffrey Bingham Mead. That's me, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, long known as the gateway to New England. The Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Peter F. Alexander, landscape architect of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum United States of America, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Thank you. You're in for a pleasant surprise at Coffee for Good. Located in the 1856 Solomon Mead Italianate-styled stone mansion at 48 Maple Avenue behind the Second Congregational Church, Coffee for Good has quickly emerged as one of Greenwich, Connecticut's top coffee houses. Its success is driven by a never-ending commitment to quality and inclusion. Coffee for Good shines as a unique nonprofit partnership between the Second Congregational Church and Abelis. It employs and trains people with disabilities through a self-sustaining platform so they can thrive in the community. The 1856 Solomon Mead House provides a 19th century style hip and unpretentious historical setting that evokes a setting filled with diverse people who are all inspired. Delightful staff, super friendly baristas, great coffee, pastries and more, Coffee for Good provides free Wi-Fi free parking, indoor and outdoor seating, with a relaxed local vibe that has become a popular study spot and destination for informal business meetings and gatherings. My friends, take it from me. The word about this gem has gotten around. Located in the historic 1856 Solomon Mead Italianate-styled stone mansion at 48 Maple Avenue, in Greenwich, behind the Second Congregational Church, all part of the Putnam Hill Historic District and listed on the National Register of Historic Places, Coffee for Good is open daily, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., except Sundays. You can learn more at coffeeforgood.org. Well, it's that time in which we go back in history to the period between 1880 to 1930. We refer to it as the Great Estates Era here in Greenwich, Connecticut. It was a period of five decades that saw the evolution of the town from simple, a simple farming community to a place more worldly and with stronger commercial ties, especially to, um, to New York City. The wealthy 
of that city and elsewhere were attracted to Greenwich, and they bought, brought with them a new level of sophistication that was reflected in these country estates. Now, thanks to the Junior League of Greenwich, um, an organization that has played an invaluable role um, in building this town into what it is today, we have among its projects the publication of a book that was released years ago called The Great Estates, Greenwich, Connecticut, 1880 to 1930. My good friend, uh, the late William E. Finch Jr., who was our town historian, referred to this period as the flowering of Greenwich. It was an age when the word Greenwich became synonymous with the word millionaire. Now, The Great Estates, Greenwich, Connecticut, 1880 to 1930 book is available for borrowing uh, from the Greenwich Library System. And you can learn more about the Junior League of Greenwich at J. Today's estate is one that is located in uh, the mid-country area of Greenwich, and it's called Lockwold. Edward John Noble, who lived from 1882 to 1958, with his older brother Robert, bought a tiny failing candy company and built it into a multi-million dollar lifesavers business. His business career, however, was not limited to candy. Besides acting as chairman of the Lifesavers firm, which merged eventually with Beechnut Packing Company in 1941, he purchased the Blue Network, which he renamed the American Broadcasting Company. He served as its first chairman, then as director, and in, 18, in 1953, <laughs> he was responsible for the greatest radio-television transaction ever, ever negotiated, the merger of his ABC network with United Paramount Incorporated. During President Roosevelt's administration, he also became chairman of the new Civil Aeronautics Authority from 1938 to 1939 and Undersecretary of Commerce from 1939 to 1940. An extraordinary capacity for hard work made him one of America's outstanding businessmen and philanthropists. His native northern New York was always closest to his heart, and he established three hospitals in that rural area. His concern for people found expression through acts of philanthropy of a particularly constructive kind, especially in the fields of health and education. Edward Noble bought most of the land for his building site in 1923, and he eventually ended up with approximately 100 acres in mid-country Greenwich. A large and spectacular part of his property was the Lake Avenue tract owned by Ernest Thompson Seton after he sold Windigool and before he left Greenwich for New Mexico. Architect Lewis Colt Albro designed an English-style country house for the nobles. It was completed in 1924, though not without difficulties, for Albro died before it was finished. The nobles aptly named their estate Lockwold, loosely translated, quote, Lake Hills Rocks, unquote. The curving driveway leads in from the main road past tall old rhododendron bushes, yews, and large evergreens, swinging by the former garage, which is now remodeled as a home. Made of stone and brick with a slate roof, it was the only outbuilding on the place. At the circle in front of the house, the main impression is a residence not of great size, but of great charm. It was built of dressed fieldstone, and as has a slate roof. The main chimney has a two-thirds brick capping, and bricks have also been used as window frames and arches. First-floor windows are primarily in wall, with leaded pane casements, grouped in twos, threes, and fours. Second-story windows 
except in the main gable, are dormers. To the left of the three-story gable, which contains the entry hall, the living room, and the sunroom on the ground floor, is the main section of the house, with a dining room and a study. Again to the left, but slightly set back, is the kitchen and the surface wing. This left wing, with its saltbox roof, forms an L with the rest of the building, following the line of the driveway. The interior of the house is meticulously finished and gracious in feeling. The rooms downstairs are large but not cold, and there is plenty of light. Throughout both structural and decorative details bring great pleasure to the eye. In the entry hall, the oak staircase to the second floor has a graceful carved pheasant as a newel post. The lower half of the wall is paneled in oak. The upper, the upper half is plaster with intricate moldings. The French doors lead to an outside terrace, have unusual grillwork, including a peacock in the center. Noble's wife, the former Ethel Louise Tinkham, collected antique English furniture with which she furnished the house, and she became an authority on early oak pieces. The living room is warm with handsome oak-paneled walls. The plaster ceiling is decorated with floral borders and plants and animals in relief. Oak leaves, a pig, a griffin, and a peacock among them. In the fireplace are its original very tall brass andirons and incorporating in the metalwork figures of people surrounded, surmounted rather, by crowns. The floor is random with peg oak, raised in one corner of the room to define that space as a library area for reading. The dining room, striking because of its large central rosette in the plaster ceiling, has teak floors. Beyond the living room is perhaps the most unusual room of all, the loggia. With its four sets of French doors, the impression is of glass and light all around. The fireplace is extraordinary, tall, graceful, shaped and made of limestone, with a crested estuchion above flanked classical figures in plaster. It also has a pair of large andirons unique to the house. The original wrought iron and gilt lighting fixture hangs from the high-beamed ceiling. The multicolored slate floor adds subtle tones to the room with its soft green, red, and gray squares. Features of particular interest upstairs include a bedroom with a barrel-vaulted ceiling, and unusual moldings, and a long hallway, its walls covered with murals of delicately painted pastoral scenes ending in an arch. A third-floor playroom has cartoon figures of the Alice in Wonderland story decorating the walls. The grounds around the house are spectacular. The land is studded with huge rock outcroppings implanted with the rhododendron, laurel, azaleas, yews, and andromeda. Ethel Noble was a knowledgeable horticulturalist and took great interest in different varieties of plantings. There are little paths everywhere, which she called meditation walks, lined with labeled rare trees and shrubs and often leading to sitting areas. The spacious lawn slopes downhill from the terrace at the back of the house to a pond and forest beyond. The site is quiet, private, and quite lovely. Noble died at his home in 1958 after a long illness. His wife continued to live there, and after her death in 1975, it was sold. Only about three acres of the estate's total are still with the residents today. However, the rest of the original property remains, separately owned, completely intact, currently classified as forest land. 
presented by the First Bank of Greenwich and supported by Waterstone on High Ridge. Music on the Great Lawn has been entertaining audiences weekly in the heart of Greenwich Historical Society's campus at 47 Rick Strickland Road. Summer is sizzling. Pack your picnic and enjoy an evening of live music in Bush Holly's exquisite historic gardens. Mark your calendars for Thursday, August 11th, when the Bob Button Band is set to perform. On Thursday, August 25th, get ready for Gunsmoke. Space is limited. Advanced registration is recommended. Members, $10. Non-members, $20. Become a Greenwich Historical Society member and receive special rates. My friends, don't put this off any further. The Great Lawn at Bush Holly House opens 5.30 p.m., concert 6.30 p.m. to 8 p.m. Parking is free. Learn more at GreenwichHistory.org or call 203-869-6899. Discover Greenwich Creating a Sense of Place is a fantastic new program by the Greenwich Historical Society celebrating its 90th anniversary. Well, how about that? Now, you're invited to savor Greenwich's summer breezes with August's Picnic in the Park series. Join us in a celebration of summer as we feature Greenwich's beautiful and historic parks, Mark your calendars and these locations. Are you ready? Sunday, August 14, Bruce Park. Sunday, August 21st, Montgomery Pinedom. And Sunday, August 28th, Binney Park. Get comfortable, meet old friends and new ones as we connect and strengthen our ties to each other and a special place we call home in Greenwich's picturesque parks. Now, for details and to order your picnic, visit GreenwichHistory.org forward slash discover dash Greenwich. Well, among the events that took place during Greenwich, Connecticut's Gilded Age era, we, we often refer to it as the Great Estates era, was a visit in, um, in the summer of 1892 by President and Mrs. Grover Cleveland. They came to Greenwich and they received a very, very warm reception. Um, it was an event that had nothing to do with politics, apparently. <clears throat> so I'd like to share this with you. Uh, this is um, an event that was covered by the uh, Greenwich Graphic, dated uh, July 30th, 1892, on page 3. Mr. and Mrs. Grover Cleveland were given a cordial welcome to Greenwich on Friday evening last. People of all classes, irrespective of party, gathered on Mr. Benedict's lawn. By the way, that would be Commodore A.C. Benedict's uh, property, Oneida, uh, which you can see, by the way, from the uh, pier at the um, bottom of Steamboat Road next to the, uh, uh, the Indian Harbor Yacht Club. Just to go down there, look over to the left, and you'll see it. Anyway, back to the story. People of all classes, irrespective of party, gathered on Mr. Benedict's lawn and signified by their presence and their eagerness to grasp the ex-president and his beautiful wife by the hand, a desire to meet these two persons whose doings have interested 65 million of people and to show them every respect and courtesy. It was hard to estimate how many people were present on this occasion, but the number was up in the thousands, and there were as many women as men present. It was a demonstration that must have been gratifying to Mr. and Mrs. Cleveland, and Greenwich has reason to feel proud of it. 
The spacious grounds, seemed packed with people and carriages filled with our summer residents, were in the background, rich and poor, jostled good-naturedly side by side, and elbowed their way with smiling faces to the porch to shake hands with the guests of the evening. It was supposed that Mr. Cleveland and his wife would go directly to Grey Gables from the city after the meeting at Madison Square Garden. Mr. Benedict said to Mr. Cleveland on Thursday, quote, Come up to Greenwich with me on the Oneida. Friday and on Saturday we'll go fishing in Plumgut, unquote. Quote, that suits me, replied Mr. Cleveland, and it was understood that it was to be kept very quiet. Mr. Benedict sent word to Judge McNall that they were coming and to give them a reception at his house and invite everybody that you can to the house, quote-unquote. And so Judge McNall hustled a little and went to Stamford and Portchester, went to the hotels and invited the guests, saw the Belhaven people and asked them to come, sent word to the ministers that Mr. Benedict would be pleased to see them, and by Friday night it was pretty well known about here that Mr. and Mrs. Cleveland were to be given a reception at Mr. Benedict's. All that it was possible to do in so short a time to make the affair pass off nicely was done. W.J. Smith, with a force of men, had the lawn in charge and put wires about the flower beds to keep the crowd from trampling on them. An electric light was put up in front of the piazza so that the grounds were brilliantly lighted. Judge McNall, Mr. John Dayton, and Mr. F.S. Hastings assisted. Mr. Benedict, in introducing the people to Mr. and Mrs. Cleveland. The Citizens' Band was on the grounds and furnished the music as occasion required. Mr. Cleveland left the city at 5.30 p.m. on Mr. E.C. Benedict's yacht, the Oneida. With him on the trip were Mr. E.C. Benedict, Mr. F.S. Hastings, and Dr. Bryant of the Health Board. The party dined on the Oneida while en route to Greenwich. It was 7.45 when the Oneida neared Greenwich. Quite a crowd welcomed Mr. Benedict and the distinguished guest whom he had brought. Mr. Cleveland and the others rode to Mr. Benedict's house where Mr. Cleveland met his wife and the ladies, and personal friends were presented at once to the ex-president and his wife. When the reception was talked of to Mrs. Cleveland, and it was suggested that the people would be very much pleased to see her, She demurred, saying that she did not care to take part in a political demonstration, but when it was understood that there was to be no political speeches, and that it was to be a non-partisan affair, she readily consented and was delighted. Baby Ruth was taken aboard the yacht early in the evening so as to be away from the noise. Mrs. Cleveland was attired in a pink costume, and an opera shawl of a lighter color was thrown over her shoulders. She wore no ornaments, and her head was uncovered. The photographs of Mrs. Cleveland represent a handsome face, but they do not do her justice. For two hours or more she sat or stood upon the porch, and her charming manner captivated all who saw her. Quote, a queenly woman, unquote, was the expression that escaped from the lips of many who met her, and they passed off the porch. Mrs. Cleveland was surrounded by the following ladies, who assisted her in the reception. At her right was Miss Lulu Benedict, 
dressed in white. On her left was Mrs. Benedict, attired in black. Mrs. Joseph Jefferson, Mrs. Walker Cable, Mrs. Ramsey Turnbull, Mrs. F. M. Fanning, and Mrs. F. S. Hastings. For an hour before the speeches, Mr. Cleveland stood at one end of the piazza, Mrs. Cleveland among the ladies, and were presented to the crowd who kept pressing upon the porch. About nine o'clock, Mr. Benedict stepped up to the railing and made a speech, welcoming the guests of the evening. He said that he had invited his friends and neighbors tonight to see Mr. and Mrs. Cleveland, and everybody in town was included as a neighbor. <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. Cleveland had come to Greenwich for a quiet time. This was a quiet place. It was so quiet that he recollected some years ago that he was elected warden of the borough, and it was sixty days afterward before he knew it, of which there was laughter. He said that Mrs. Cleveland had been enjoying herself for a few days here in writing about the village. She was delighted with Greenwich, with its beautiful scenery and charming drives. She said that she would love, like to settle down and live here, of which there was loud applause. He hoped it was such a strong liking she had for Greenwich that she would soon feel the making the place her residence, of which there was loud applause. Mr. Cleveland looked around, and Mrs. Cleveland laughed heartily. All eyes were turned to her and Mr. Cleveland. After Mr. Benedict presented the guest of the evening, there was a great shout. The cheering, blowing of tin horns, the rattle of drums, and whistling of fifes continued until Mr. Cleveland began to speak. His only allusion to politics was in an indirect way, from the remark made by his wife to Mr. Benedict that she would like to settle down in Greenwich. In fact, this was the substance of his speech. He said, quote, When I came here something less than one year ago, I suppose that all my friends in Greenwich were included in this family circle. I felt fully at home under this hospitable roof. A manifestation that occurred, however, which convinced me that I had many more friends up here. And now, after an absence of a year, I come back again to see this demonstration, and I assure you that I am gratified again because of the emphasized evidence that my friends were not merely those in this pleasant home. Our friend Mr. Benedict has spoken inducements and allurements to my wife to settle down here. I don't think it is quite fair for him, in my absence, to be putting ideas like that into my wife's head. <laughs> I'm afraid she will have to go with me, a voice to Washington. A few millions may have something to say about where my future home shall be. Of course, I cannot settle that question. Ordinarily, it would be impertinent for them to say where I should live, but now, if they do as well as I hope they will do, a change of residence will become absolutely necessary. I am not going to talk politics with you tonight, but the party to which we belong seeks supremacy this fall, not merely because they desire the success of the party, but because the beliefs and principles for which they stand all conduce to the welfare of this country." If you or anyone else can convince me that these principles are not for the good of the people of this land, then I want to have nothing to say about my place of residence. <clears throat> I came from my country home in Massachusetts for a quiet visit to New York. 
It has been very quiet, almost as quiet as it is here this evening, of which there was laughter. I should be wrong to take this manifestation as a compliment merely to myself. There is nothing personal about it. It proves that you love your country and have a respect for those who have or who may administer its government. I know your partisanship is not such as to carry you so far that you will not be willing to strive every time that your government shall be so conducted. I hope that whatever fate may have in store for me, I shall always merit and meet with your approbation. Wherever my future lot may be cast, wherever my home shall be, this incident will always be remembered with the greatest possible satisfaction. Unquote. Mr. Cleveland's reference to Mr. Benedict's tempting Mrs. Cleveland to find a home in Greenwich, and the probability that several million Democrats would probably make the Cleveland's home in Washington after next March, caused great applause. After the speaking, the crowd were invited to come forward and shake hands with Mr. Cleveland. Mr. Benedict said those who did not shake hands with him when he was here before, No, said Mr. Cleveland, quote, I will shake hands with all of them, unquote. And on the steps, the handshaking was kept up for an hour or more, Mr. Cleveland responding to the many expressions of pleasure in a pleasing way. Many persons were presented to Mrs. Cleveland. The ladies especially seemed desirous to see her and she had a smiling face and pleasant words. Those who seemed to belong to the wealthy class were not received with more pleasure than the poor man and his wife and children. Mrs. Cleveland seemed particularly pleased to meet them. Quote, no, I'm not tired. Let me shake hands with them all. I'm delighted, unquote, she said, in reply when a remonstrance was made by those near her. Quote, I'm not tired in the least, unquote. Nearly all the clergymen in Greenwich were introduced to Mrs. Cleveland. A number of Belhaven people, and many of our summer residents, our local politicians of both parties, were well represented and their wives were among them. Prominent people from Portchester, Stamford, Bridgeport, New Canaan, Norwalk, Darien, Rye, and numerous other places on the New Haven and Hartford Railroad. All these towns had heard that Cleveland was to be in Greenwich, even though most the most of the wise people around the Fifth Avenue Hotel firmly believed that the ex-president would go directly from the city to Buzzards Bay. A graphic representative, through the kindness of Mrs. Fanning, was introduced to Mrs. Cleveland and had a moment's talk with her. Thanking her for her words of praise of Greenwich, she replied, quote, That came to me spontaneously while out riding with Mr. Benedict, unquote. Could Mrs. Cleveland have expressed her delight with Greenwich? and her sincerity in saying it in more convincing words. And that, my friends, was the story about the visit to Greenwich in uh, the summer of 1892 by Mr. and Mrs. Grover Cleveland. Patty Silkman is a recently retired Greenwich public school teacher who taught math and science at Central Middle School for 38 years. Currently, Patty is a storyteller at Greenwich's Byram Schubert Library. The Greenwich Historical Society invites you to enjoy summer story time for preschool children. Join us for stories and music in the gallery and garden. Wednesdays 11 to 11.30 a.m., July 13 through September 28th. Reservations requested but not required. Learn more at GreenwichHistory.org or call 203-869-7000.
6899. One of Greenwich, Connecticut's great institutions here is the Bruce Museum. And there was a story from July 28th, 1922 um, that uh, caught my attention. Um, and it was the public pronouncement that the Bruce Museum at that time owned 13,000 specimens. And given the age of the museum at the time and, and all, that was a pretty pretty major story, I think. I, I, I believe so anyway. Let me share this with you. A recent census of the Bruce Museum collections showed the surprising fact that there are now some 13,000 specimens displayed or deposited in the building. It will be of interest to many to know just how this large number of valuable objects is distributed in the various departments of the museum, and the following is a rough classification of the types of specimens and their respective numbers. Insects, 2,350. Mollusks, 2,100 birds, 525 birds' eggs, 990 birds' nests, 85 mammals, 89 botanical specimens, 81 heads and horns, 55 batrachians, I don't know what that is, 76 of which 36 are living, reptiles, 40 of which 10 are living. Biological preparations in glass, 26. Fish, 50. Gems, 21. Minerals, 850. Fossils, 218. Marine specimens, 50. Indian specimens, 4,850. Colonial, 400. Books and pamphlets, 225. Specimens in storage or not displayed, 500. Considering the youth of the museum, this is a very remarkable showing. Many people are referring questions concerning bird and mammal life to the museum staff who are only too glad to answer them. This is an important service of every museum, and it is hoped that more appreciation of this will be shown by those interested in science or nature. Additions to the living collection of reptiles and batrachians are steadily being obtained. A very large hognose snake was recently donated by Mr. Wilbur F. Smith of South Norwalk. The specimen flattens its head until it takes on the exact shape of the deadly cobras, and the action is accompanied by a very loud hissing. The reptile is quite harmless, but, needless to say, is left strictly alone by most of its enemies. Another valuable addition is a large spotted salamander six inches long. It was obtained by the assistant curator some miles from Stamford in the deep woods. Its color is blue-black spotted with large round marks of bright yellow. In the same cage with this animal may be seen a number of newly matured Pickering's tree frogs. They are less than one-half inch in length and were raised at the museum. In the Hall of Insects, five new cases of South American material have just been placed on exhibition. The attendance during the past month has been very good, many hundred people visiting the collections. Well, it's time for Crimes and Misdemeanors. This is the segment of the show in which we pay our respects to the Greenwich Police Department as it continues to observe and celebrate its 125 years of history. This is a, a story that um, definitely caught my eye. It is dated August 1st, 1924. and was published in the Greenwich News and Graphic. And the uh, headline is Chief Two Moons Revenge. Man who bumped his auto gets $25 fine. And the story goes as follows. Follow along. 
Big Chief Two Moons of the Blackfeet Tribe, North Dakota, who resides in Waterbury, where he is, he is head of the Indian Herb Medicine Company, of which Dr. Daniel J. Nugent is treasurer, with his chauffeur, George Dingwell, was in the borough court last Friday morning to appear against Sven Peterson of Greenwich Avenue, whom he had caused to be arrested. The big chief did not have his war paint on, nor did he wear any feathers, but was attired in true civilized costume. According to Dingwell, the principal witness for the state, he was driving a Lafayette special on the night of July 18th on the Boston Post Road near the Riverside Garage, proceeding east. The big chief and doctors Russo and Nugent were in the car. Peterson, in his machine, suddenly pulled out of the line and shot ahead of the chief's car in traffic, which had stopped, and in so doing damaged the chief's car. The road was torn up at this point, and there was only one-way traffic. Peterson explained that he had to turn in to the right in front of the big chief's car as he found a motor truck proceeding in the opposite direction as he was pulled out to go around the car. Dr. Russell, in testifying, caused even Judge Meade to smile when the latter asked the witness to confine himself to actual facts and not as to what he thought or imagined. Quote, Oh, sure, of course. Bet your life, unquote, was the physician's reply. Judge Meade found Peterson guilty of reckless driving and imposed a fine of $25 and costs. Well, what a great show that was today, don't you think? I would like to take this time to thank you very much for tuning in to today's 12th of August 2022 episode of the Greenwich Town for All Season Show podcast. It's hosted by me. My name is Jeffrey Bingham Mead. I'm a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, which was founded on July 18, 1640. Greenwich, Connecticut is one of America's most interesting and extraordinary communities, and its history is very interesting and extraordinary. I think that you will agree, uh, and I'm so glad that you could join us for today's show. Your, you and your stories uh, and your place here in Greenwich are part of our history, and we're very, very glad to have you. Now, the Greenwich and Town for All Season Show podcast is made possible by Mr. Peter F. Alexander, landscape architect of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, which is a project of Site Design Associates, the Ambassador Museum of the United States of America, Mr. Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. We're very grateful for your support, and we thank you so much for that. You can always contact me at Greenwich and Town for All Season at gmail.com. And hey, you know what? If you run into me um, either at Coffee for Good the uh, at the Solomon Mead House or anywhere else that you um, happen to find me in Greenwich, well, you know, stop up and, and say hi and, and socialize. We're more than happy to do that. Maybe you've got some history that you'd like to, uh, to share with me. Now, you can learn more about the show. You can also listen to past shows there is no paywall, so it's all free by going to greenwichatownforallseasons.blogspot.com. Both the show and I are on Facebook and Twitter, so please be sure to, to check that out. Now, speaking of Facebook, I want you to look for and join any of a number of Greenwich, Connecticut groups. Uh, these include, you know, you're from Greenwich. If, where, by the way, I post 
uh, the uh, the show. Uh, Judy Goss is very, very happy to, uh, to make that possible. Thank you, Judy. We really appreciate that. Um, also, the Greenwich in Town for All Seasons show uh, has a Facebook uh, wall, so please go there and uh, and like us, please. Images of Greenwich, Connecticut, Greenwich Connections, Byram Neighborhood Association, the Friends of Byram Park, and uh, in a toast to our neighbors in uh, New York, the Portchester New York Historical Archive. And you can also look for more groups um, elsewhere on Facebook. Now, our next show is scheduled for Friday, the 19th of August, year 2022, of course. Please, by all means, go out there, enjoy your weekend and the coming week ahead. We'll see you next Friday again on the 19th of August. Bye-bye now. (laughs) 